Well, it would be possible to do just a general message on Thanksgiving because there's over 30 commands in the scriptures for believers to give Thanksgiving to God. And there's even uh, uh, passages that characterize the ungodly as those who are ungrateful, like 2 Timothy 3.2. The title of our message is Our Thankfulness for the Church, and it flows out again of verse 18, which I've said now a couple of times, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It would be very tempting to take that verse out of its context and just use that into a, to launch into a platform of thankfulness. And that wouldn't be unbiblical. We, we could do that very thing. But as I mentioned, I want us to see the context. I want us to see the connection of what God is sharing through the written letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So as your outline indicates, we're going to look at two reasons to be thankful and to celebrate God's ministry of the local church. The first reason to be thankful is for the ministry of church leadership. And this truly is a measure of God's faithfulness to the church, that he has ordained, that he's called and commissioned ministry leaders in the church to labor and care for the souls of his people. I look back at my experience and my growth in the, the local church. And I know that many of you can as well. You can look back at the church that you attended and you can see a long line of faithful men who were, who were diligently doing all that they could to bless you, to minister to you, to pray for you, to care for you in every way. And we know they weren't perfect men. There, there's no such thing as, as a perfect man or perfect leader in the church, but we can all recall many sacrifices that they made on our behalf. And as verse 12 shares, we want to appreciate them. Look at verse 12 again. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. The New American Standard uses the verb appreciate, while the ESV translates the verb respect them. It can also mean to honor them. Why? Because God has provided them to work hard in leading us. They work diligently and serve as advocates on our behalf. And this is what it's ultimately saying when it says have charge over you in the Lord. It means they lead you in the Lord. They lead you by their example of labor. They also lead you by giving you instruction. Victoria, when I, when I was sharing this message uh, with her, she says, isn't it a little awkward for you to talk about this? And, and I said, you know what? Not at all. Not at all. And I was serious as a heart attack because I said, it, the, the text says to appreciate them. This is, this is a, plural, uh, a, a plural pronoun here. It's not devote all your attention and exalt a single man in your church and put him up on a pedestal and make him holier than thou. That's not what it's saying. It's saying appreciate the them, appreciate the leaders of 
the church. Ministry is always about a team effort in the body of Christ. And whenever an individual pastor or elder begins to think that somehow it's all about himself and pride infects his thinking, let me just share with you, it's the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of the end. The Lord will quickly remind him that it's about God's plan. It's about God's glory. And the Lord may direct such a person right out of the ministry. And besides, any man who is truly called an elder or pastor will quickly discover that nobody can do ministry by themselves. Absolutely nobody is able to do it on their own, and that's by divine design. This is my diabetic CGM that I just shutting down so it doesn't beep anymore. <clears throat> but it's, it, it's, it's designed by God that way. Nobody can do it on their own, right? Nobody. And we think about just even the leaders that God has provided from the, for the church and the elders, even the, the plurality of the elders can't lead the church on their own. And that's why there's care group leaders. That's why there's specific ministry leaders over designated ministries because it's a team effort. It's a total team effort and it's by God's design. He wants us to appreciate the leaders that he's provided for us. God only, not only wants us to appreciate ministry leaders, but verse 13 calls us to esteem them. Look again at verse 13. It says, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. My preferred translation isn't esteem them because in the Greek, the, the word really means to lead the way. So it's emphasizing to lead the way in love. God's leaders are to love his sheep well, and God's sheep are to love their leaders well. And so someone might be tempted to ask, well, what does that look like practically? How do I esteem and, and love my, my leaders well? Well, we get a description of what agape love is in, in the love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verses 4 through 7. We get to see it. Loving your ministry leaders means being patient with them, being kind to them and gracious to them. It isn't a selfish love. It doesn't seek its own interests or keep a record of wrongs suffered. And I'm so thankful. Cornerstone, I want you to know that I'm so thankful to be at a church where there's a mutual love respect and appreciation shared between our church leaders and our church members. And I can confidently say this on the elders' behalf. We're so blessed. We're so blessed by the love, encouragement, and receptivity that this body has, has shown towards us as we've done our best to, to lead the church. We know that we don't lead perfectly, and we're, we're so grateful that you don't expect us to that there's grace given on both sides. We're so encouraged. One of the rich blessings that we witness continually is seeing how you all minister to each other, which brings us to our second reason, to be thankful. Be thankful for the ministry of church members. Starting at the end of verse 13 and extending all the way through verse 18, the Holy Spirit led Paul 
to record 10 consecutive commands to guide the ministry of the local church at Thessalonica. And you can see them listed in your outline. At first glance, it might appear that these aren't in any uh, logical order or there's no natural progression, but uh, again, a closer look's going to prove otherwise. Notice the first command at the end of verse 13. Paul writes, live in peace with one another in the New American Standard. The ESV says, be at peace among yourselves. First, it needs to be said that the believers in Thessalonica lived in the same fallen and broken world in which we live in. A world filled with greed and envy, strife, malice, division, prejudice, corruption. That's just the short list for, for those in Thessalonica, and it's the short list for us today. The testimony of the church is to look radically different from the testimony of the world. And one of the greatest ways for the church to be a witness to the watching world is by living in peace with one another. The church, the ecclesia, the assembly of called out ones gives testimony to the spirit of God working in our midst as we maintain unity and peace. Living in peace with one another is a byproduct of unity and therefore God's word puts a premium on unity and its gospel witness. I've said it before, God is most glorified when the church is most unified. Amen? It is true. God is most glorified when the church is most unified. And this is why Ephesians 4.3 calls you and I to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity and peace go hand in hand. And it describes how we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in our lives. Colossians 3, 14 and 15. It emphasizes the same reality of the gospel when it says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Now, Ephesians 4, 3, we've talked about this in a past sermon at one point, I believe, mentioning it, that it calls us to be diligent to preserve unity. And so this takes a spirit-guided effort. Now, what does that look like practically? How will the church maintain unity? It comes right here in our passage. This is where the commands that follow come into play. Peace is maintained by admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, not repaying evil for evil, but seeking the good of others. It's right there before our eyes. Each of these commands provides a practical measure for you to live in peace with one another in the family of God. Also important to note is that each of these commands are in the present tense, and so they reflect continual actions. You and I and everybody in the body is to make it our habit to minister in the church in this way as it relates to these commands. To diligently maintain and live in peace with one another, we must, according to verse 14, admonish the unruly. The verb, verb admonish isn't common in our vernacular, but it basically means to warn, 
Who do we warn? The unruly. Again, another uncommon word, which literally means out of battle order. Pretty interesting. Sin presents real dangers. And yesterday, the men of our church had the opportunity to be admonished by Pastor Bobby Scott as he warned us about sexual lusts and temptations. And he used the example of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and he described how King David, King David got out of battle order. And he became undisciplined and idle with his time. And it opened up the door for him to be tempted by Bathsheba when David, he should have been engaged in battle. And his focus should have been on the Lord. I think a modern expression that we could use that sin causes us, the, the impact of sin has on our life, is to, to be out of line, out of step, out of order. One way the ministry of the local church blesses us is by promoting discipleship relationships to make sure that we have brothers and sisters in Christ helping us see our sin and our spiritual blind spots. People who are going to regularly ask us, hey, how are you doing? You know, those who have spent time with anybody in care group, you can look at a person, you can tell in their countenance, can't you, when something's up? If you know somebody, you can look into the eyes, you can look into the gateway of the soul, and you can look and you can ask the question, how is your soul doing? You see in their eyes. In fact, it's one of the reasons why when people get upset, they tend not to look at people. Or if there's something that's out of step in their life, their eyes won't engage with you. Why? Because there's issues going on. There's guilt, there's shame, there's factors related to sin in their life. People who, who will ask you, you know, you just don't seem like yourself. Is everything okay in your walk? What are you struggling with? Generally speaking, the people who, who love you the most spiritually are going to be the ones who ask you those type of questions. How is your soul? And you know what? They'll probe a little bit more. They're willing to confront you because they love you. They're willing to say hard things. Proverbs 27, 6, all the, all the way. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's true. It's so true. Sin causes breakdowns in personal relationships, family relationships, marital relationships, ministry relationships that threaten the peace and unity in the body of Christ. And if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, then you and I have to be willing to both warn people about dangers or things that we see in their life or in their walk, and we also have to be willing to receive ourselves. hey, I have concern for you. I've noticed I've noticed that you're really struggling, whatever the case might be. And, and I say this, and, and I was reluctant whether I was going to share this or not, but if, if, even for somebody who hasn't been at church for a couple weeks, I'm not the church police, nor is any ministry leader. That's not the desire of our elders. But there's an indication of something that, 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 that's going on if, 
if you haven't been around, we're, we're concerned about you spiritually. And some people with sickness or um, travel or with all kinds of challenges, there's, there's real reasons. So you get what I'm saying. But this, this is the way that we're called to care for one another. And this is Care Group 101 ministry. This is the basics. So if you don't have discipleship relationships in your, in your walk right now taking place, our study today in God's word is going to reveal that that's his will for your life. That you would have those discipleship relationships in your life. That you would have that layer of accountability. That you would also have that layer of protection and care. If you're in a care group and you feel like you need to be challenged more, or need greater accountability, then be sure to sit down with your care leader. There's no offense. There's no offense taken there. I'm, I'm really struggling. Just, just share your heart. I, I need you to hold me accountable in this area. Or, or find another brother and sister in your care group. Verse 14 shares a second command that should cause us to be thankful for the ministry of the local church and that promotes living in peace with one another, which is to encourage the faint-hearted. The Greek word translated encourage can also be translated to cheer up or to console. The word faint-hearted can also be translated discourage. So you could actually render it this way. Encourage the discouraged or console or cheer up the faint-hearted. Throughout the letter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has mentioned things that could be reasons why the believers in Thessalonica were discouraged. Paul mentions their persecution by non-Christians in chapter 2, 14 through 16. He mentions the absence of the evangelists in chapter 2, 17 through 20. He implies various trials and temptations in chapter 3, verse 5. And the death of fellow Christians in chapter 4, 13 through 18. Whatever the difficulty, the church was being summoned to encourage such people. What discouragements have you faced recently? And you know what they are. What, what has been a discouragement to you personally that you've dealt with? Where might you need to be consoled? Is your heart hurting? God gave us the ministry of the church and discipleship so that we can care for, console, and comfort one another. Well, verse 14 is going to continue with a third command, which is to help the weak. And the word help can be translated uphold or support. The word weak can reflect spiritual or physical weakness. Spiritual weakness when our faith is tested and we find ourselves vulnerable to doubt or lacking faith. Physical weakness is when we're sick or injured or physically challenged. Romans 15.1, I love the passage because I think it really does reflect care group. I think I've mentioned this before, those opening verses of chapter 15. But listen to verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Galatians 6.2 calls us to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. All of us, 
All of us experience moments of weakness, and we need the help of those around us. And we see examples, great examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament of this taking place. Dear brother, share with me the example of Moses in Exodus 17, when Moses uh, led the fight against Amalek. And he needed Joshua and her to hold up his arms as he held up the staff of God, right? And he got tired and weary, and he couldn't do it, and he was fading. And those brothers came alongside of him, and they held up his arms so he could uplift the staff. And what happened in that account? When they held his arms up, right, the Israelites made progress and defeated the enemy. And when they let his arms down and when they grew weary and they didn't help each other and the staff came down, the Amalekites began to take over. There is no shame and weakness. There is no shame in needing help. Don't allow pride to prevent you from receiving from the very hand of God that which he would have for your life. And if you want a real humbling example, you can just think about the Lord Jesus Christ as he carried the cross up the hill to be crucified and he became so fatigued, so physically exhausted, he fell down and he collapsed. And guess what? There was a man, Simon, who had to help pick up that cross and carry it. Life is filled with heavy burdens, and they come in many forms. They're physical, they're relational, they're financial, they're spiritual burdens. And God gave us the ministry of church members so that you do not have to carry your burdens by yourself. What is the greatest burden that you're carrying right now? And I have a more pointed question. Are you the only one that knows about it? Because if you're in Christ, that should not be the case. The greatest burden that you're carrying, my friend, needs to be shared. How are God's people shouldering it with you? Are you being tempted to carry any burden on your own? Well, there's a fourth command in verse 14 so that we can live with one another in peace, which requires patience. The end of verse 14 says, be patient with everyone. Many of the problems with the Thessalonian believers that they faced came from challenges inside the church. For example, young believers were unruly and still engaged in sins that needed to be repented of. Thus, Paul emphasized refraining from sexual immorality in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. And so it's important to note and a, 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 a takeaway that we can get from the instruction that Paul was trying to encourage them with is that not every Christian matures at the same rate. And so we need to exercise patience with those in the church so that we do not allow the challenges that are bound to arise in discipleship to throw us off course or to be tempted to get impatient. When ministering to the unruly or the faint-hearted or those who are weaker in faith, you're going to, you're going to be tempted to get impatient. That's, that's the reality. And that's why we have to be led by the Spirit in our ministry to one another, right? When there are those who are needy, when there are those who are weak, you know, the, the flesh will rise up and say, come on. Come on, right? Doesn't it? 
But the Spirit has compassion. The Spirit says, I need to slow my space. I'm, I'm, I'm walking, and we're walking with the Lord, and you're walking pretty quick, right? And so you're trying to get people in discipleship to, to walk with you. But sometimes we have to slow down. We have to be patient with those we're trying to help along the way. Not grow impatient and say, come on, let's go. Are you dealing with that again? Seriously? Young married, you guys are arguing about this again? I mean, come on. Come on. No, sometimes, you know, everybody, there's so many things in life that we're going through, some of us for the very first time. We need to walk slower. We need to be a blessing. And we need to exercise patience. The fifth and sixth commands to live with one another in peace both come in verse 15. And they are, don't retaliate, but seek good for others. Look at verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Many believers in Thessalonica were being persecuted for their faith. So in addition to dealing with believers who were hurting, the church oftentimes had to deal with unbelievers who hurt believers. And the, the natural response is vengeance. Vengeance is a natural reaction to an offense suffered if you are out of, are of the world, but for the believer, this is not an option. And this is why our natural impulse when somebody cuts us off in traffic isn't just to smile and wave. It's not. Right? The flesh immediately rises up, right? I'm going right up close on their bumper. How did they cut right in front of me? Can you believe that? That they did that? You know, right? That's, that's the flesh. When someone hurts someone you love, your flesh rises up and it wants to take over. Just watch a mama bear with her cubs one of these times when, when it gets threatened, the, the, the natural impulse that takes place in a sin-fallen world. But God has changed your heart so that you won't take vengeance into your own hands, but rather yield to his Holy Spirit and cling to Christ for help. And the Apostle Paul, he, he expands in, in greater detail about vengeance in a familiar text in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. And I'll give a synopsis of, Paul's, uh, of what Paul shares there. A believer should bless not curse others, even their persecutors. We're called to do what is noble and whatever is going to enhance the reputation of the church. We're to shame the evil deeds of evildoers. That's what we're called to do. And it's in hopes that our kindness will lead them to repentance. And you've heard it said that we're never more like God than when we forgive. And it's true and I think the same thing can be said when we're never more like God when we emulate Christ's remarkable love and patience with evildoers and his willingness to even do good, even to do good to those who did evil to him. All these commands reflect the testimony and gospel witness of the church. And it's really what the, the watching world sees as their eyes are on us, the, the members of the church. 
It is powerful and supernatural. And I want you to see the impact that God expects that this will have on our lives in verses 16 through 18. And these are, I would just say, these are radical verses. Verse 16, by the way, one of the shortest verses in all of Scripture. I'm going to read 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Just being honest, I think some have been discouraged when reading these verses. I know that my own heart has been in the past because I, I, I look at the commands, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, continually, in everything, through all circumstances, give thanks. I haven't done that. I don't know about you. Pretty sure you haven't done it either. Now let's add a little more weight and read the second half of verse 18. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Wow. And here is where good hermeneutics come into play. Hermeneutics, principles of Bible interpretation, good exegesis and study of the scriptures. All the commands in our passage today are in the plural and are written to the church. And I've shared it before, that if God expected us to pray every second of every day without ceasing continually, right, that would mean praying without sleeping, not just praying without ceasing. And the same could be said for rejoicing or giving thanks. So how are we to understand these commands in the given context? Especially if the end of verse 18 says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will referring to? Some have suggested that it refers only to the commands in verses 16 through 18. Others believe that it points backwards, or, or, or excuse me, that points backwards to verses 16 and 18. Others believe that it points forward to verses 19 through 22. And if you see these verses as just some hodgepodge, some random collection of commands, then you might be able to get away with that argument. But since this is all one paragraph in the, in the Greek, one, one pericope, it's all one continued, continuous thought in Paul's mind, I believe that all the commands given are strategically placed and all reflect God's will for the church. If the local church is faithful to these instructions, and, and, and you, I want you to grasp this, you guys. If a church will appreciate and esteem their leaders, if they will live in peace with one another by faithfully admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, not repaying evil for evil, but seeking the good of others then this will lead to continual rejoicing, continual prayer, and continual thanksgiving collectively in the life of the church, which is God's will for the church. That's it. That's the picture. Don't, that, that, that burden and even the temptation sometimes when we read the text because we see you instead of you all, or good old-fashioned southern term, y'all. Haven't heard that in a while since moving from North Carolina. But, but, it, but it's a y'all. It's, it's, it's collective. It's us as, as, as a group. And that, that, that allows us to, to experience freedom there, right? Because we see that this is, this is God's plan 
for us in the local ministry of the church. That's what's going to allow us to continually rejoice, to continually be prayerful, and to continually give thanks. And I want you to ask me how I know this is true. Somebody please ask me, Pastor John, I want you to tell me how you know this is true. Because I see it. Thank you, Lolly. I see it taking place in our church. I see it right here in our midst. It is taking place within the body of Christ. The testimony is real. And it's so encouraging. Praise his holy name, amen? Praise his holy name that is taking place in the ministry of the church. We get to rejoice together. We get to pray together. And I don't think it's ironic, but the word actually chosen for prayer here is a general one that implies a worshipful approach to God. And I think Paul was led to use it because of the overlapping aspects of these three commands, which involve rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, right? There's almost this synonymous element with these things as we do them together. This is God's will for the local church that we get to celebrate. When we see these commands being honored, it is an indication of a spiritually healthy church. God will bless a local church fulfilling his design. He did it 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, and he'll do it in 2016 right here in Orange County if we will just honor his word according to his will. Here's another way to apply the principles from this passage that I, I thought about as I was meditating on it. It dawned on me that when it comes to a Christian family living at home, that this parallels God's will for the family as well. If kids and teenagers, I want you to hear this. If, if you will appreciate and esteem your parents, esteem your leaders, and if all the members of the family will honor the Lord and try to live in peace with one another by faith, faithfully admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, not repaying evil for evil, but seeking the good of others, the same thing's going to be true in your household. That there will be continual rejoicing, continual prayerfulness, right, as some of the hard things that need to take place, admonishing the unruly, are going to get us to our knees in prayer, right? But there's going to be continual thanksgiving as well. And I don't think it's ironic that the Puritans used to view their homes as little churches. That was their desire for their house, that what took place in the, the, the house, the ministry of the home, would reflect and emulate the ministry of the church. To me, that is just like profound. Why? Because they, they, they were so drawn to what the Lord prescribed. What a blessing that God has given us through the ministry of the local church. Amen? Amen? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I got you. <laughs> we, we are so blessed. And so as we go into this week of Thanksgiving, I want your heart to be encouraged. Be uplifted. Be, be thankful. 
Rejoice in your heart for the ministry that God has blessed us with. May it encourage you at the beginning of this Thanksgiving week. And may all of our hearts collectively continue to rejoice together, to pray together, give thanks together for the great work he has done and will continue to do. Pray with me. Father, we again just want to pause and recognize you. Your wisdom prevails. You allow us to see the the depth and the clarity of your word and the tremendous purpose behind every command that you've given for our lives, even the corporate commands here in this passage for the church. And yes, it does imply that we will obey those commands and keep those commands individually. But in the bigger picture, as it relates to your living organism, this local body giving testimony to the surrounding world, this is what you've prescribed and this is what you want for us. That they would see us living in peace with one another. That they would see the love, care, concern, and the affection that we have for each other. Father, I'm so grateful that you led me here. Thank you for giving Victoria and I three years of ministry at Cornerstone. And we pray that you'll give us many, many more years together. And regardless, regardless, leaders can change, elders can change, leadership changes, but your word abides forever and your prescription for the church, your testimony of the church is designed to remain the same and to be consistent. We want to celebrate you. We thank you for everything. And we know that it all starts at the cross. We know that peace ultimately all starts with reconciliation with us through Christ that we would be reconciled to you the great God of the universe and what a privilege it is that we get to celebrate communion together so fitting on this day we want to thank you for all that you've done for us and all that you're going to continue to do we ask you to bless our time second hour as well we commit it to you in Jesus name we pray amen